Well, good morning, and thank you for being a part of this service, wherever you might be today. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes, where we have been studying. Today we look at the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you're looking for it in your Bible. This past week I came across a quote by Jim Carrey, the actor, that nicely summarizes our study from last week, chapter 6. Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Isn't that wise? He would like to see that we could all could experience wealth and fame and do everything we dream of because then we would know it's not the answer. And that's really what we saw last week in chapter 6, that the so-called good times are not always so good for us. Uh, you can have money and fame and it says even health, live a long time and be empty and unhappy. As we continue our study into chapter 7, we really discover the flip side of that truth, and that is this, that hard times can be very good for you. Hard times can, we don't really want to hear that, I know, but hard times can be very, very good for us. And there's kind of a almost shocking first illustration as he tells us that funerals are better than parties. Ready for that? First four verses. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, funerals, not parties. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. He kind of turns everything upside down in terms of what we would desire and says, actually, no, it really works much the opposite. Hard times have more value than good times because, I think this is the key issue, they make us think seriously. So he starts with a simple proverb, something he said similarly in the book of Proverbs. Solomon says, a good name is better than fine perfume, or however you might have it in your translation. Literally, it's a good name is better than good oil. The oil he refers to is olive oil, which was a precious uh, commodity of the day. It was used in perfumes. It was used in food products like our salad dressing. It was used kind of as an anointing when you, when you were uh, honoring somebody. It was used as a lamp uh, fuel, oil. And so you needed it, and it was, you, you pressed it down from olives. It was a very, very good thing, and you needed a lot of it. So would you rather have a good reputation or good oil? And indeed, there's plenty of people in the world who, who would easily sacrifice their reputation to have money. They forfeit their reputation, they forfeit relationships, people don't trust them, people don't like them, 
But Solomon reminds us, no, you'd rather have a good reputation, wouldn't you? And that's what draws him into this illustration of the funeral, where he says a day of death is better than the day of birth. I mean, you've got, you got to be kidding. That gets our attention. In what way could that ever be true? We rejoice at a good birth. You know, this baby is healthy and crying and wonderful, and we're celebrating, and we're mourning at a funeral. So how could that somehow be better? And it seems he's drawing attention to that first line. He says, because at the day of death, you can discover the character of the person because they have lived their life. And so if you are thinking at a funeral then that is going to be a valuable time and this man's or this woman's life has already shown itself to be of value but the day of birth you don't know what's going to happen this this child could be a disgrace and be somebody who who's a bad influence on others so it's better to go to a house of mourning verse 2 than to the house of feasting the funeral not the party because where do you find people who are thinking seriously not when you got the mix of alcohol and hilarious laughter. You're ignoring everything important. In fact, you probably make some mistakes. So it's better to be at a funeral, better for you. Because death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. Somehow when you see that body lying there lifeless, you are thinking about the right things. You're thinking about the most important things. You realize that you're one day closer to your own appointment. Verse 3. Sorrow's better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Does the right things for the heart. He's not against good fun. Really, that's not even in the, in the context at all that you know, you're enjoying time as a family or playing a game and you're laughing or the kids are laughing and having a good time at a coffee shop. This, this isn't about that. This is comparing the time when people are kind of getting crazy at a party and compare that to a thoughtful funeral. Because at a funeral, you, you think about that person's life. And we, you kind of assess your own. You know how we often have uh, open mic times at a, at a funeral where people can stand up and say something about the, the person and as you hear somebody who's had a real positive influence, maybe spiritually or emotionally and, and, and all these characteristics, you think seriously and you say to yourself, I want to have that legacy. I want to be like that. But then there's other times when, yeah, I've been at funerals where the, the mic is open occasionally and, and people are like scrambling to come up with nice things to say. Because you don't just stand up and say, Joe was rich, but nobody liked him. It just doesn't seem appropriate. And so it makes you think, no matter who the person was, you think about the right things. It's good for your heart, the quality of your heart, your priorities. So verse 4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of, the mo of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of of pleasure. You, you, you go away from a funeral thinking wise thoughts, but you leave parties sometimes embarrassed. Can't believe I said that. So it's drawing our mind and our heart to think rightly, clearly, objectively, seriously 
about the most important things. That's why funerals were better. So chapter 7 is a little bit more like a, a doctor's office. It's not a place where you go to have fun. I mean, this isn't middle school, you know, seeing if you're okay to run the 100-yard dash. This isn't a fun time. You go to the doctor, and you're getting those tests, and then they take the tests, and they, you come in, and you sit down, and the doctor looks at you, and, and, and good report or bad, this is nothing laughing, because this is your health, and this matters. So he says, approach life, making sure that you pay attention to that which matters. And we were warned, kind of, that he was going here because Solomon in chapter 3 was saying there's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to weep, a time to laugh. And well, this is that time to think seriously, not because God's opposed to good times, but he is making sure that when we have hard times, we are going to be thinking about the things that will sustain our life here and, of course, that would impact eternity and impact the people that are left behind. So now that he has our attention that we would be thinking about a good name, verse 1. And death makes us think about that. He says, so now that I got your attention about character having the priority, he says, let's talk about character. How do you develop character in life? Verse 5. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is, is meaningless. We all love compliments. Or as someone has said, compliments do wonders for our sense of hearing. Just, your ears perk up. Somebody is, is affirming, applauding, praising me. We, give me more, give me more. We long for praise, and, and affirmation is a good thing. It's a, it's a sign of... A, Somebody who has a gift of encouragement, somebody who just cares about encouragement will, will say those things. It's important, but this is a different. The song of fools is different. It's flattery. Flattery happens at parties when you're slapping each other on the back and everybody's, you know, everything's great. You don't talk about problems. You talk about everything that's, in fact, you exaggerate because you want to be friends and fit in. And flattery is a compliment with an agenda. And that's a song of fools. Flattery means that somebody wants something from you. They want to tap into your influence. They, they, they want to maybe control you. There's some, some selfish agenda that they have. He says, be aware of this, Solomon says. Don't, don't just take it all in just because it's, you're so, so thirsty for praise that you just say, oh, that's wonderful. Give me more. In fact, he says, here's what's better than a compliment. A flattery kind. Here it is. Rebuke. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. You've got to be kidding. No, he says. In fact, you should even pursue it. Uh, Solomon, as well as his dad, David, both made this point elsewhere about taking good advice. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Flattery compared to loving rebuke. Or in the Psalms, David wrote, Let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. Not 1040, but the olive oil that we talked about before. 
you take advice well? Do you take correction? Do you seek input from people who really care about you and, and know you? If someone gives it, will you respond? It says, heed a wise man's advice. I think the toughest test is in marriage because the complication is that so often in marriage we dispense our great advice at a time of anger or argument. And so it comes across as, as an attack. A wise man. Notice, notice the character of this rebuke. A wise man's rebuke. Wise people don't spew out criticism when they're mad. A wise person will carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, graciously approach someone that A, they have the relationship, the margin, the trust. They have the relationship, and number two, they are doing it genuinely to benefit the other. This isn't just about the selfish uh, desires. And so it's a, it's a tricky business, isn't it? But he says, it's so much better to heed a wise man's rebuke. And there will be no perfect advice. So are we able to see the kernel of truth in any advice? Because we want to have a character. We want to have a good name. We want, we want our whole life to matter. So that at the end of our life, people can grow and benefit, especially those who knew us best and loved us most. So having real or, or, or genuine and, and godly character is better than good oil, and so you're going to have to lean into the hard conversations. Like the crackling of thorns in the pot is the laughter of fools. So, same subject. That laughter of fools is the song of fools, is the flattery. It's like those, when you start a fire, you, you'll use those little dry, thorny branches, but, but they won't cook your soup. They just get the fire going and he says, likewise, flattery might please you for the moment, but rebuke can help you for a lifetime. So ignore the flattery. So how do you recognize if someone is wise? <clears throat> Verses, uh, in verse 7, he says, well, here's one way. Can they be bought? Can be bought with money, because money turns wise people into fools. Oppression, or you may have the word extortion, oppression turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So the first line is the scenario that there's a person with more power oppressing the person with less power. We came across this word uh, oppression in, in, in a couple different times already. It's, it's somebody who is unjustly treating, taking advantage, cheating somebody who is more vulnerable and, and less powerful. And it causes the person, so the, the first line is picturing us as being the oppressed. Will that take, will that drag us down so that we would act really unlike our otherwise more normal, wise character. Because injustice, experiencing injustice, will turn some people into fools. And, and I think we all identify with that when you, when you feel like you've been cheated. On the short end of the stick, somehow financially, it brings out our wor worst impulses. It could drive us into foolish responses. You're in a store and you don't get the, the discount or the product was faulty or the sign deceived you and you just feel so justified and sometimes I find myself about to say something I'm going 
seriously, I'm going to say that? Or sometimes we have to go back and apologize. Because it can, it can drive us into foolishness. The second line, the first line, you're being cheated. The second line is, I think, describing when you have the upper hand because you have money. Okay, so, so you, can, you can power your way through this with a bribe. There's some way that because you have more money, you can do the unjust thing, illegal or at least unethical. He says, that'll corrupt your heart. It'll change you. When you, see your, when you begin to see that your financial resources equal power, he says, that can just start to slowly take your heart and change it. So beware, if you, if you care about a good name, if you care about the day of your death, make sure money doesn't change you, whether you're the oppressed or the one who would bribe or take advantage of somebody else. It really works both ways. So what piece of our soul would we sell for financial advantage? Because the IRS would never know, or the big box store, the big corporation, no one's getting hurt, those kinds of thoughts. So, hard times don't always help us. Hard times can actually push us down if you're the oppressed. So, this is kind of like the exception to the chapter, but basically, is it more that success is what's hard on your character, or is, is it sometimes that hard times are when you excuse bad behavior, defend yourself. Because the intent, verse chapter 7, is all about how hard times bring the most important potential character growth of your life. In what ways, verses 8 through 12 point out, trials can develop our patience and trials can develop our wisdom. These are like core character issues that are essential to us. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, verse 8, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. So that it's comparing the patient person to the impatient, angry person. <clears throat> but the end is better. So we should be people with the long view. We should be people that see, to think about how will this turn out, not how is it going. Early last summer, we bought three blackberry plant, uh, blueberry plants, and uh, I guess they're kind of tricky. Uh, so I understand you got to you have to actually test the soil and the acidity, and then you add expensive stuff to it. And the plants survived the summer, but in that first year, they don't give you any any fruit. We'll see now if they survive the winter or not. And so maybe next year we'll have fruit might cost us 50 cents a berry by the time we're done, but at least it's fun to try. The end of the matter is better. Think of the long view. Think of, think of the fruit of what you're going through. Because in times of, of, that are hard and, and in a trial, we're, we're just all absorbed with the pain or the frustration that we feel. And so are we going to be thinking about that or will we be thinking about the end of the matter? What is... Really, what is God doing through this hard times? Because good things take time for that fruit to mature. If you know a patient, gracious, enjoyable person, 
That took time. It probably took hard times. So leverage your hard times to to grow patience. Because patience, the comparison is, is better than pride, or literally, as some of your Bibles have it, the patient in spirit versus the proud in spirit. That's the contrast. Patient in spirit is the person who is able to wait. Wait on God. What, What will God do with this? And that's fundamentally different than the proud in spirit because the proud in spirit is all fretful and thinks, I got to change this. I got to control this. I got to manipulate this. And so that's what drives them to this anger, this temper issue of verse 9, as we'll see. But the idea was that the end of the matter would be better than the beginning. And so this process of the hard time is supposed to develop that patience As James so well reminded us in chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. This is is mind-blowing because, but, but James is actually telling us we should be so convinced of the value of hard times that we actually say, well, this is going to be good for me. As hard as it feels, this will be good for me. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is that enduring power that you're going to need all through life. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the first question we have to ask is, do we even want this? Is, is, is this a goal to be mature and complete, lacking nothing? I, our church family at different times, everybody's facing something. I don't know if yours is, is health or financial, family issues, hurt, grief, loss, temptation, addictions that have such power, guilt of past failure. There's, there's just so many hard things that are now there. Do we, do we embrace the fact that God wants to use these very things to produce a better thing? The end is better than the beginning. I'm, I'm just convinced as I look through my life that God has been in a sequential process. He knows that for me, I needed this at this time, then I needed this, and I needed this, and I needed this. And so there is a master plan that is designed towards my character and i can either resist or embrace that do we so do we trust god's timing when it's just a matter of accepting not feeling it'll hard times will never feel good okay don't we consider it good we consider it joy but it'll never feel like joy or will it because if, it does, if we don't embrace it that way, it is going to anger us. And then what happens? Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. That'll drive us to fool, foolish behavior. So what causes you to flare up? That's a temperature indicator. What provokes our anger is the very place God is at work in us. Because anger resides in either the lap or you have the, the heart or the, literally the word is the chest. 
you get that tightness in your chest in hard, stressful times. You get that tightness. And uh, that, is, that tightness, that, that feeling in our chest is that anger brewing that then like a time bomb can explode because we're impatient and so we're trying to control the situation and, and we make all kinds of foolish mistakes. Solomon wrote elsewhere in uh, Proverbs, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. This, this person, no matter what their past has been, suddenly you look like a fool when you haven't been cultivating patience. So anger is a danger to the progress of the very thing that as believers and followers of Christ we should desire, and that is this good name, the reputation, the character, the impact. Or James 1, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Imagine the loss. If Christ saves us by his righteousness and gives us positionally his righteousness, qualifies us as righteous in heaven, but then here on earth, we don't have any of the righteousness of God. It's, it's just missing. What a loss in the plan and purposes of God. It's a, it's a serious absence. Plus, we'll find ourselves with a trail of hurt and uh, hurt relationships and personal bitterness because anger resides there. So trials are meant to develop this patience. The end of the matter is better than the beginning. And it's to produce wisdom, verses 10 through 12. Do not say... Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom is like an inheritance, a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. So trials can grow our wisdom, and so it's important that we don't long for the good old days when life was better, but we didn't have the wisdom we do now. I, don't, I can't think of a passage more timely for 2020. Haven't we all thought this? Why, I just wish it was normal. I wish we could just press, rewind. Before, the, before there was a pandemic, before we had the mask issues, before we had the political uh, heat and the anger, and I just want those good old days. I know I longed for it. Ten weeks of preaching to a camera and hoping you guys were on the other side someplace. Adjustments, canceling, just slowly regaining opportunities to minister now. And so what, is, what does God's word tell us about longing for the good old days, normal it actually tells us, don't do it. Don't say, I want the good old days. Don't. It's not wise. Why? Because wisdom is better than that. Because whatever it is that God has allowed is actually so that we would gain wisdom and so that we gain character. So, so 2020 has been like an inheritance, a, a windfall from God. Wow. All around, all around the globe, 
is the spiritual opportunity for wisdom. Because wisdom is like a shelter, he also says. Like money is a shelter. Money in the savings account means that if the uh, water heater goes or the car dies, you can cover that. Money in the retirement fund means that uh, when you can no longer work, you can still eat. But wisdom is even better because why? The advantage is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. This uh, reference to having life can refer either or both, either to an extended life, because certainly wisdom will extend your life in general. Because you, you don't get drunk, so you don't drive reckless, or you don't take illegal drugs or whatever. And so it can, it can extend your life, whereas foolishness can, can cut it short. Or it could be referring to how, how wisdom is life-giving. It changes the quality of your life. Your attitudes are different. Your decisions are different. Your relationships are better. Because people like to be around people who are patient and wise. And people tend to avoid or resent the, the, the impatient, impulsive, and foolish people around them. So, we really do, like James says, want, want, want to have the trials that bring about the endurance, the perseverance, the character, so we can mature. If you really think it through, we really do want the upside of those hard times. Hard times have value, but only if you trust the sovereign God. That's verses 13 through 15. And so we have to trust God's sovereign mix of good times and hard times. Verse 13, consider what God has done. Uh, this is really the, the first time God is directly ad addressed, the issue of God is addressed in this chapter. Consider it's a God thing. What God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? That kind of catches your attention because usually we like to think that God is, is fixing and straightening things, not making them crooked. But this is acknowledging, no, God lets things go crooked. The word means bent. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In fact, Solomon says, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness. That doesn't seem right. And a wicked man living long in his wickedness. That doesn't seem right either. Injustices. So, this is teaching us that as we think about our own hard times and what God might be producing, we have to fundamentally accept God's sovereign control. Consider what God has done. It's the work of God. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? There are injustices. There, there are, it, there, life is not normal. It is, it is crooked right now. We cannot straighten that. God bent Mankind all around the globe with a tiny virus. God did. 
This past year, God has allowed COVID. Again, this is different than saying that God caused it because God is not the author of sin. The virus is a result of the sinful, broken, fallen condition of man going back to Adam. But God has sovereignly allowed this season. All around the globe, and we have to remember the global issue because sometimes it's all about us and America. It's, it's around the globe. So what, we have to ask ourselves, why did God allow this particularly for his church. Because God's family is his focus. And so his, his family, his bride, the church, is suffering all of these struggles and all these conflicts simultaneously. We would have to assume that God is doing something pretty big to allow something that would impact Really, believers everywhere around the world simultaneously. It happens very rarely. So what good thing is he doing? Because we have to assume in the goodness of God, as he thinks of his family, he's doing something good. Just like you as a parent. Do your best to do that which is good. God in perfection does that which is, is good. It seems he wants to grow our patience. Verses 8 and 9, and our wisdom. Verses 10 through 12. So, patience. Has your, have you had any relationships tested? Duh. What a spiritual opportunity, right? Didn't you say that? Have you gained patience this past year? Patience for those who love Jesus but don't agree with you. What an opportunity. Wisdom. Wisdom is a shelter that protects are you wiser than you were February of 2020? Have your priorities become more clear and God-focused? You've perhaps suffered with COVID or some other illness. You've perhaps mourned. You've been frustrated with what's canceled, frustrated with what the government is or isn't doing. So has it caused you to have a longer, wiser, better, God-focused perspective on this time as well as all hard times? Because that would have incredible value. Don't waste what God allows. And rest in this god Sovereignly allowed it. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? God remains in charge. You're not. I'm not. The Democrats are not. The Republicans are not. Your pastors are not. The scientists are not. The conspiracy theorists are not. The news media you like and the news media you don't like are not. We're not in charge. And we need to embrace that. And, and if you are seeking peace in any of those labels, you will not find peace. And if you don't find peace in this trial, do you really think you'll find peace 
in any other because trials are tough. So are we growing or growling? What's our attitude? Because, verse 14 says, when times are good, we can be happy. We can rejoice when there's a reason to rejoice. And when times are bad, we should consider God has made both. Both of these are happening really simultaneously. I hope and pray things get better. I do too. Meanwhile, my grandchildren are growing up, and they laugh, and they make me laugh. And I love my wife, and she loves me. And I love my church family. I enjoy being around you. And so we need to embrace all this and enjoy everything that is good and enjoyable and meant for our fulfillment, while simultaneously embracing that which is hard and difficult about it. When times are bad, what should we do? Not anger, verse 9. That's what the world does. Just watch them. Turn on the news, or maybe not. But not what the world does, but when times are bad, then that's when we consider that God has made one as well as the other. And he did not let go of the wheel. He did not relinquish control to the Democrats or whatever you're thinking. He, he didn't, nor did he judge the earth and burn it up. Yet, as we studied prophecy not that long ago, we know that someday he will, but he hasn't. So this is my father's world, and it is his will for it to go on. And so when times are good, don't feel guilty enjoying what is good. And when times are bad, consider, yeah, God's in this too. Some people have asked if I think this is the end times. One day closer is all I can say. But is it a day? Is it a year? Is it a generation away? We don't know because it's, he said we don't know. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about the future. What will be after him? I don't know. You don't know. The politicians don't know. The point is we should consider and trust God because he knows. And whatever the next years hold, this world is going to really need a lighthouse of people who trust him. And so what better preparation, what better upside could there be than he has allowed us to just churn through all of this and figuring out where will our focus really be? Because we'll probably need it more and the world will need us more than it's ever needed us before. Even when there's injustice, verse 15. I've seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness People are suffering who don't deserve it. People are flourishing who don't deserve it. There's injustices. We've been reminded there are political injustices. There are racial injustices. There are financial injustices. There are uh, injustices where you work and where your kids go to school. Maybe injustice in your marriage or other relationships. Injustice. We're going to it's nothing new. Solomon was telling us this 3,000 years ago. And so in chapter 6, he was reminding us that there's a downside to good times. Don't just, don't just think this is the way it has to be all the time. And 
even more important, maybe what we've seen today, that there is an upside to those hard things. Life's funny like that, that the best things in life often are the hardest. And so Solomon took us to a funeral and said, you know, if you go to a house of mourning, you might get some really helpful things that you wouldn't have gotten anyplace else. But this we can count on, and I just want to close with a few words from Lamentations, maybe familiar to you, where the prophet Jeremiah, at a very, very hard time, the nation had finally suffered the discipline of God, and the Babylonians had come and taken away many of the people, killed many of the people, burnt the city. And Lamentations is Jeremiah writing, looking over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, verse 22, because of the Lord's great love or mercy, we are not consumed. So we're still here, right? For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That doesn't change. I said to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good. He had to remind himself as he watched his city, his beloved city burn. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. So it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And can God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we so, in so many personal ways, we don't even want to hear it. But we know it's maybe the most important thing we can learn, that the hard stuff is producing or intended to produce the best stuff in our life. I pray that we would embrace by faith your goodness and your faithfulness when and how and wherever we are tested. For some today, we have thought back to how you have already shown yourself faithful to do that in the past. For, for many, we're maybe going through something right now. For others, Lord, you are laying the groundwork of our heart to prepare for something else that is before us, but that we need not fear because we're going to wait patiently to see what really good thing you will be doing. And so we say together that we trust you. And it's because of Jesus we can know our future. And in his name we pray, amen.